But why I'm feeling more excited about the climate solution space than I have in the 20 years I've been working in it is because honestly, I've never seen more action happening. And at very high levels, everywhere I look now, I see serious people at tables trying to hammer that out. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 078, number 78 of the Flux Capacitor. This episode was recorded in early July 2023 on Zoom. My guest today is Jane McDonald, I'm Vice President of Climate and Nature Solutions. And I'm talking to you today from Winnipeg, where I'm based. Jane joined me for a wide-ranging climate change discussion, which touched on the Paris Accord and the dynamics of international climate negotiations, the urgent need to ramp up production of renewable electricity internationally and here in Canada, the real impacts people are now feeling due to climate-induced extreme weather, and how to stay positive and motivated in the face of alarming extreme weather. And Jane also had a book recommendation, a very timely addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my chat with Jane McDonald. Welcome to the podcast. It's it's great to great to get you on. It's, it's terrific to to connect on these issues after you know we've we've worked on on a number of initiatives over the years. But it's terrific to to connect with you specifically, uh, you know, on on uh, our climate commitments and climate change. So I thought maybe we'd start there and uh, you know talk a little bit about um, you know you've been involved uh, on these files. In your role at the Climate and Nature Solutions, uh, and you see some of your previous roles, the Federal Minister of Environment's office. So you've been involved in, in uh, you know, having uh, a hand and a, a seat at the very, you know, the very front of of all of this. As uh, you know, Canada's been working in uh, various international accords and frameworks. So mm-hmm. I'd be interested to kind of get your perspective on where we are today, and you know, insights on why the Paris targets might be more successful than all of the previous targets since the 1990s right. that we've missed. Yes, definitely. And and first, I just want to say thanks so much for having me, Francis. I'm delighted to be here. And we certainly have gone back yeah. a few years now yeah. um, in various iterations and um, and really directly worked together when I was with Manitoba Hydro, yep. Yep. Um, working on uh, sort of climate imperatives there and, and the and Obama's clean power plan. So that just dates yes, us, right? That does so, date us. <laughs> but um, but so uh so thrilled to be on your podcast. And yes, happy to talk about why the Paris Agreement um has really been a lot more successful so far um than our last attempts at an international uh-huh. um, agreement. Um and and I think um will continue to be successful in terms of the the overarching frame. Um, and I'll, we can talk a little bit about why I'm, I'm hoping that sticks. But basically, I think, you know, when we started um, with these international agreements way back, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the Rio or Summit in 92, um, the idea was to sort of pursue a collective binding agreement mm-hmm. that would commit countries to act and impose penalties 
yep. um, you know, they missed their targets. And that really all came together in 1997 with the Kyoto Protocol. Um, and that bound about 37 industrialized companies to specific targets. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and as we all know now, that sort of failed spectacularly over the following years. Uh, the U.S. pulled out. They couldn't ratify it. Um, the Senate yep. would never pass it. Canada then pulled out. We were unable to meet our commitments uh, in 2011. Mm -hmm. The original sort of voluntary carbon markets we had envisioned um, and that I had been working directly on for some time never really took off. Yeah. Um, and then attempts to kind of revive the whole architecture of Kyoto and, and re-energize people around it um, really culminated in 2009 um, in Copenhagen at the COP15 summit. And that was um, like a huge, quite a demoralizing failure really for um, for diplomats around the world who have been working on climate for a while. I mean, it was a real sort mm -hmm. of stalemate that, and people walked away from the table. So I think coming out of that, it was quite clear we needed sort of a radical new approach to thinking about how we could all be moving together on this. And I mean, I think we had to go back to basics and, yeah. and recognize that, you know, as much as we'd like to sort of dictate um, by fiat how this all moves forward, no one's in charge, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. the UN does a great job of convening people. And I think that's actually essential because it's really the, you know, the only place and time once a year where leaders of developed countries have to look leaders of really vulnerable developing countries in the eye and uh, mm -hmm. and hear from them about what's happening in their countries and justify kind of what we're doing. So, I mean, I think it plays a really important role, but I think we had to be really realistic in recognizing, um, you know, how countries could come to the table. So the first thing we did was say all countries have to be involved because mm -hmm. major developing countries are now, you know, moving past, um, developed countries in the amount of emissions they spew and the potential for emissions in the future right. in massive countries like India and others, I mean, is just um, really critical uh, to address the problem. And since, you know, 20 years has passed, we really need them at the table now. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was the first piece. I think the second piece was recognizing that, you know, national sovereignty had to be respected. People had to set their own climate pathways and policies to achieve them. So what we needed was this overarching common purpose and that got defined pretty clearly, actually, um, at the Paris Agreement talks uh, in 2015. And we all agreed that holding the increase in global temperature to well below two degrees and pursuing efforts to limit it to 1.5 was what we were all gunning for as a collective. <laughs> and so under that, countries had to come back with their own uh, pledges uh, about what they were going to do. Um, and then we would actually just regularly assess them so transparency was a big piece of that yep. and it uh, you know and every few years those policies need to be ratcheted up in, mm -hmm. in order to make sure we're on the path to this this common purpose so obviously the first round of pledges came in we're not on the path to right. yeah <laughs> um, so ratcheting up uh, has begun and this year there'll be the first global stock take of what has gone on how are we doing? What do we need to switch up um, to get there? So that's going to be um, quite interesting. Um, and I think the, so the real kind of machinery behind this is just kind of a common goal, transparency in how we're doing, and basically shame mm -hmm. uh, every time we come together every year. And that's, I think, probably realistically what the design has to look like. And so just kind of making sure that we're all aware of where we're at, who needs to step up, who's not pulling their weight, um, is kind of uh, 
it's kind of the architecture. And then there were two extra pieces that got sort of um, pulled forward in Paris. One was really moving to include non-state actors in the uh-huh. parlance of the cops. Yep. So just uh, private sector and other levels of government. Yep. And really viewing them as critical partners. And so they were kind of, you know, brought to the table and, and really pushed to say, like, what kind of, you know, outside of the sort of nation to nation negotiations, what can you all bring to the table? What could you <laughs> put on the table and pledge together? And so there's been quite a lively second track now, cops, which is really important because we're not getting anywhere without the private sector yeah. um, at the table and really actively moving money. The, governments won't have enough capital to really make this energy transition happen without them. Mm-hmm. So that's been great. So you saw even at the COP, um, Mark Carney uh, pushed this task force on financial disclosures, yeah, um, yeah. all kinds of stuff has been happening since on that front. And then the second extra piece was really, um, you know, something that is always on the table whenever the international community comes together, and that is uh, pledges for financial flows. Right. Move from developed countries into um, poor countries to help them meet their targets. So a lot of poor countries who came to the table said, we're, we're game to make targets and push towards something, but we're going to need help. And so we're going to need money to get us to move off the kind of infrastructure we have now and do a new build out. And so that was a big piece that is still the thorn in the side of international go- negotiations and um, you know probably always will be. It got uh, a big, there's going to be a big conversation around that in Dubai this year because we're coming up on a new loss and damage fund that was agreed to last year yeah which you've heard about in the news and then also the kind of global finance target is set to be updated now we haven't actually hit the first one yet yeah right (laughs) we're hoping to do that this year and then we're going to be needing to start setting a new finance promise so so there are always lots about that, but I think that's a, that's a key part of the Paris Agreement. So, so that whole architecture has sort of been picked up in parallel by national governments, mm-hmm. and by the private sector increasingly in the last few years with net zero pledges um, coming from all corners. Um, and so it's been a really interesting um, to see how this architecture, which has its, its own pluses and minuses, but really has endured. Yeah. How are we fitting into all of this? In, in, and by we, I mean, you know, Canada generally. Is Canada playing a significant role uh, in this space? Or are we, you know, continuing to be one of the one of the countries that winds up in that third category of, of, of those who are being shamed? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the good news is almost everyone is in that category. So we're not yeah. alone, yeah. I guess. Um, but no, I think, I mean, Canada has made some significant steps in the last um, several years to really kind of put the architecture in place at the national level to start us down the path of, you know, really turning, bending the curve and starting to reduce our emissions. So I think there's been a recognition that Canada's at the table in good faith. Um, you know, we've done the coal phase out, we put a price on carbon, we're moving mm-hmm. along. I think the, you know, where we're often called out at these um, events is that we've done, you know, little to nothing about um, kind of phasing down fossil fuel use beyond right. coal. Oil yeah. and gas is the big piece, right? So mm-hmm. that's a huge piece of our emissions and um, and sort of how we how we consider that is is something that is always on the table and uh, uh, not just with us, but um, at all COP meetings. So, you know, we've never had a COP meeting that actually, you know, where there's any text in the final resolution that says there is a need to 
phase out, phase down fossil right. fuels, um, yeah. even though it's very clear from the IPCC and from the IEA that we need to use significantly less of those if we want to go anywhere near to close to getting to our 1.5 target. So, so that's a, you know, that's a tricky piece always for Canada. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, the flip side of that is that in order to reduce fossil fuel use, what we really need to do is ramp up renewables mm -hmm. drastically. And mm -hmm. so, so the, the really key piece for us is the electricity sector in Canada. And I think right. it's only in the last few years that's really kind of hit the public conversation in a real way and understanding that, um, yes, it would be good not to subsidize the fossil fuel industry anymore. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of public conversation around, do we need to, you know, be paying for their carbon capture and storage, uh, or should that be something they do themselves because our public money should be focused on building the new energy systems we need. And there, I think we've seen some progress in the last budget around the electricity sector, mm -hmm. but that's, you know, that's, so that's a, I think it's now becoming clearer, um, how we get off fossil fuels. It's not mm. likely to be successful, um, as a strategy, waiting for them to reduce their own <laughs> output is probably not a winning right. game. We've tried that for a long time, and they're clearly not doing that. I mean, they made uh, unprecedented amounts of cash in the last year, um, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the IEA put out a new report showing that, you know, oil and gas companies are spending less than 5% uh, of that return on, on clean solutions. So I think, you know, too much focus maybe on that um, industry in terms of our public conversation and not enough on the clean energy conversation and build yeah. out that happen. So that's starting now, um, mm -hmm. which is fantastic to see. Yeah, he, both both here in Canada and at COP as well. Are you seeing yes. that at COP where the focus is now shifting to building out the, the, the clean energy future? Yeah, I think... I think that's right. I think we've always been kind of, um, you know, COP's focused a lot on the kind of architecture of what nations need to do because nations yeah. are so different. Uh, and so it's hard to dictate exactly. But this is the first year that having a global goal for renewable energy is on the table um, right. at COP. So, I mean, that would be really great. Um, so that positive kind of frame for, you know, what that build out needs to look like. Um, and and kind of driving the the focus on in the financial sector around that and everything would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I think there's you know there's some momentum around that now, but the COP is not you know the again the diplomatic text of the COP is often not where you want to go to, yeah. to be looking at the kind of uh, you know what's needed in the business sector to do this um, right. country by country. So. There, I think there's a lot more action happening outside of the you know nation to nation negotiations at the COP, right? Uh, and going back to that kind of private sector, second, uh, you know, second sort of what I call it, track of conversations, yep. is where we're seeing more action around around the clean energy sector. Yeah, and it's and been fact, it's been it's been absolutely fascinating the last the last the last couple of uh, cycles of COP meetings I I, I was uh, I was um, I was at Madrid I was at uh, Sharm El Sheikh the uh, the bingo uh, group the <laughs> business and industry non-governmental organizations uh, incredibly active uh, uh, at the conference and uh, and it's it, it, it's interesting to see how that how that is becoming um, a, a bigger part of the overall conversation around the, the COP conventions themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think everything's becoming uh, much more tangible um, yeah. 
know, in the last few years around what actually has to happen on the ground. So we were, yeah. we were talking a couple of weeks ago in Winnipeg around kind of what I would call the shift from ambition to implementation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's uh, been given a huge boost, I think, um, by really credible government moves to to push things forward. And um, and that's happening uh, in all kinds of places, but notably in the last little while in Europe, mm -hmm. um, in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act, the amount right. of money being put on the table now to kind of really move the clean energy sector is um, is really got the private sector paying attention, which is fantastic. Yeah. It, it's getting a push because people are feeling the impacts of climate change in a way that they maybe haven't before in developed countries in the last few years. So, I mean, obviously we've just gone through, um, you know, a really insane start to our fire season here in Canada. Absolutely. And, you know, that means I'm having conversations with my neighbors that I was not having yeah. Yeah. five years ago yeah. because our kids' soccer practice is canceled because of the smoke. Right. Or they can't play tonight because of the heat. Or of they, the heat. So yeah. I think it's just, yeah, hitting at a level that seems real to people in ways it wasn't eight years ago, five years yeah. ago. Um, so that is a depressing <laughs> state of affairs, but um, <laughs> I guess good in a way because it's focusing um, the minds of, I think, the general population. Um, in ways it wasn't before, at least in Canada, right? certainly yeah. in the work I was doing in other more vulnerable countries, it's been like that for a while, but that's, yeah. that's been really remarkable. And I think that drives a lot of activism, which has become much more sophisticated in the last few years as well um, to really push and keep this uh, topic on an, on the agenda at the, at a time when we had COVID hit and in the last year, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I've been very, yeah. Yeah. reassured that climate has not fallen off the agenda in the way that it maybe did when we had kind of, you know, an economic downturn 10 right. years ago. Yeah. So I think it's a little, you know, it's, it's gotten a little more real for people in multiple ways. And that's why I think you see these kind of business groups, um, instead of talking about what is the target, they're now talking about how do we remove yeah. barriers? Right. Where, how do we share the risk? What is the realistic way to finance this um, moving forward? And what do we really need from governments in terms of risk mitigation right now? So that's, um, you know, really energizing. Yeah. Well, and you, you, you'd mentioned that uh, it is very top of mind for people because of some of the current climate challenges. Just for the for the listener, we're recording this in in early July. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, uh, the the news said that uh, that Monday of this week was the hottest uh, hottest day ever on record. And then I, I I checked the news this morning, and they said uh, Tuesday topped Monday. So <laughs> so Monday was the hottest day on record, and then Tuesday was an even hotter day. Uh, and so who knows? Maybe you know the news tomorrow will say uh, Wednesday has now been the hottest day uh, ever right. recorded on 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 planet Earth. But let me pause for a second, Jane. And one of the things that I ask folks that come on the uh, on the podcast is about their journey and you know yeah. you'd mentioned that well like we've known each other since your days back at manitoba hydro um yeah. but but yeah i I, th I think that the listener probably be interested in just getting a sense of of what your journey has, has been and I, I i joke with people to come on the podcast that you know when you were a when you were a kid on the in the, in the school ground is this what you always dreamed of doing and, and, <laughs> and what was the path that you took to get to where you are today Oh, that's a great question. Um, no, when I was a kid on the school ground, we weren't talking about this. Um, but there sure is an army of young people coming up now who are uh, talking about this on the school ground, including my two kids. So I'm I'm really interested that now there are kids who dream about kind of working on climate solutions. Yeah. 
right out of school. But certainly when I was coming out, no, I was really interested in being um, a newspaper reporter. Oh. Uh, an okay. industry that's now booming. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I was, uh, and and through some of that work, early work um, in newspapers and and a lot of travel I did in my 20s, um, I really started becoming more interested in um, in the climate issue and what was happening in uh, around the world on that. And so I went back to do an MBA uh, in uh, an international MBA um, to, to try to think about um, how companies were dealing with environmental challenges and, and what was sort of a nascent uh, conversation around climate markets and, uh, you know, new international targets and how, how would the private sector be dealing with that. And so I actually, my first job was to go down to work in Texas okay. with oil companies there to help them price out the, their climate change risks in terms of, you know, infrastructure in the Gulf being much more uh, mm-hmm. susceptible to kind of storm damage. And then what was the kind of risk from, from policy change? Now, this was, geez, back in 1998. When, okay. Yep. Uh, we were sort of like, absolutely, policy is all coming immediately because we've signed <laughs> the Kyoto Protocol. Yeah. So they've had a few more years to get ready. Um, than I had originally anticipated, but um, it was a really interesting job. And then I uh, went to work um, in the financial sector with Cantor Fitzgerald, which is a New York investment bank uh, right. that was at the time starting a new desk around uh, carbon credit deals. So mm-hmm. I was again sort of um, working with uh, big energy companies on international projects. So it was a really kind of interesting when I'd be working with an oil company in Calgary or an electric utility in Japan, and they would be wanting to invest in a hog manure carbon capture project in Chile. (laughs) It was a a really interesting first round uh, in the carbon markets uh, space. Mm -hmm. Um, And then basically I was um, recruited by the federal government in Canada to come up and, and work for them on climate. And so I, I did work for them as a negotiator in the COP process uh, and in the market space um, before moving back into kind of uh, public sector or civil society work with um, what is now Smart Prosperity and IISD based here in Winnipeg yep. and going to work with Manitoba Hydro. So yeah, and as you mentioned, I did do a, a brief stint uh, in the in the political office of mm-hmm. Canada's Minister of Environment, Catherine McKenna, when the Trudeau yep. government first started. Um I had known her before she became minister and agreed to come for a year and help her sort of get on her feet um, as minister. And boy, was it a busy year. Was yeah, the Paris Agreement, yeah. was the Pan-Canadian Agreement. It was yeah. a price on carbon. Uh, right. Yeah, that was that was the, the Pan-Canadian framework was, was yes, at that point in time. Yeah. Negotiating with all the provinces. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really interesting um, moment uh, to, to be in that office and, uh, and really kind of, a, I think, a turning point where you're laying down kind of what the new... Sort of policy architecture would look like uh, right. in Canada. So, not um, not a, not a smooth year. I mean, it was a lot of negotiating with different provinces, and then of course that whole landscape has completely changed. Also, so I was going to say, we're, yeah, we're pretty far from that that consensus now, aren't we? Yeah. So I really have had a very um, a career led by just really interesting opportunities in a space that was uh, kind of growing with me in in complexity and reach and uh, and sort of ambition over time. So it's been really a fascinating career. I feel like I've been working on the same topic, but from very different <laughs> seats around the table, right. which is um, kind of useful in climate change because it is such a far-reaching problem to get your head around. So yeah, it's been it's been quite fun. 
Yeah. Hey, you, you mentioned the, the meeting a couple of weeks ago in, in Winnipeg. Once again, mm. thanks. Thanks for participating and being, being part of our policy symposium. But um, the, the focus there was was about electricity, uh, of course, mm. uh, uh, being the uh, Electricity Canada, uh, the association. Can you kind of maybe give the, the listener a sense of, of what you think is needed from the, the uh, electricity sector? What role uh, are we going to have to play to be able to uh, to help Canada achieve our, our greenhouse gas reduction targets? Oh, well, I mean, you're the backbone yeah. uh, of making this energy transition. So, I mean, it's absolutely critical um, that we, I mean, in Canada, it's not, you know, we don't face as critical a question about cleaning our grid, as you know, because we're already um, quite yeah. clean compared to others. So we're a bit ahead right. of the curve on that. There's still work to be done, obviously, in certain pockets across the country. Um, but the real challenge for us, I think, is is thinking about how to essentially double the electricity supply yeah, by 2050. Right. That's yeah. the real challenge for us. Yeah. The scale of that build out is, um, you know, is daunting. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't, as I said before, I don't think it's received the attention or action it requires yet. And so, um, you know, I think there's a conversation to be had around and it's, it's being had now around what are the big barriers to that yeah. and what are some of the solutions to those barriers. And we, um, when I was at ISD just a couple of years ago, we had started a, um, an initiative called Electrifying Canada that had a lot of um, end mm -hmm. users at the table, um, industries like tech um, and others, but also utilities at the table and uh, just talking about kind of, okay, what does this, what does this challenge kind of mean and mm -hmm. what would be the kind of main issues. I mean, obviously electricity is always complicated here because it's provincially run. So, yeah, and our yeah. systems are very different across the country. So, you yeah. know, all of this stuff, I don't need to be telling you this, mm -hmm. but I think for us, we really thought, you know, the big opportunities for us to kind of seize the opportunity of moving forward were, were really focused initially on kind of empowering utility leadership and climate through regulator mandates mm -hmm. to consider climate as part of what they are actually tasked to do because as you know these are pretty heavy regulated uh entities yeah. and right now you know they don't have the mandate to kind of consider how to be part of the energy transition in canada alongside rates and reliability so so really making sure we get that signal and then having that utility planning and growth uh, align with net zero pathways to ensure kind of that the clean power supply that industry are going to want and need and that we'll need for buildings is actually there when we need it. And this is tricky because, you know, we're now talking about anticipating supply, yeah. which isn't easy, an easy question either. And yeah. then finally, I think that, you know, the third kind of immediate thing that we were really talking about um, a year ago was just um, how to finance this. Yeah. How do we crowd in private capital into this space? How do we make sure that banks um, are at the table that the government understands the kind of risk pieces. And there are, you know, as I said, in the budget, um, there are uh, quite a bit of uh, incentives on the table right now for the electricity sector. <laughs> the um, infrastructure bank, you know, is actively looking at this space. But I think we were really keen on on pushing also banks to be at the table early in these conversations, yep. understand how yep. they can help shape deals that actually kind of move things forward. And so, so figuring all the, those three kind of big pieces were, was sort of, you know, where we landed first. Now, obviously, there are lots of other considerations, I think, in, in terms of how to move this forward quickly. There are 
pieces around, and certainly this is something that we um, were, well, was very kind of front and center when I was at Manitoba Hydro, but you, we need to have indigenous partnerships. Those need <laughs> to be created kind of upfront immediately. Um, don't waste time, get into those conversations early. So it doesn't kind of, um, you know, really skew our timelines. That's yeah. quite an important piece. <laughs> Permitting, also a piece that probably needs looking at in terms of being really careful that we don't, um, you know, we don't sort of blow past serious community or environmental considerations, but mm -hmm. into account for building out a clean energy <laughs> infrastructure this country needs to avoid horrendous climate impacts and do our part, then that needs to be taken into account when we talk about the timing of permitting. So I think there are many challenges on the table, but, you know, I think they're not challenges we can't overcome if we're really keen to do this and there is leadership at the table. So I, I'm encouraged that the conversation has ramped up so rapidly in the last few years around, well, what could this look like and what would it take? Mm. That's not to say it's been solved, but I, I at least think the, it's on the table, which is helpful. Right. One of the things that, that you'd mentioned a couple of weeks ago was um, international mm. sustainability reporting metrics. Yes. So um, again, you know, for the for the sake of the listener, and maybe a little bit for me, um, <laughs> like, wh why is this important, and 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 how does how right. do how does how do um, sort of international standards and, and and metrics and measures help us uh, to meet sustainability goals? Right. Okay, that's a great question, um, and particularly for the electricity sector, because you yeah. know, as you said, a lot of these are kind of quasi-public um, utilities with that aren't kind of operating in a in a normal publicly traded corporate world. So, right. so what has been happening over the last few years is a real rise in ESG reporting. So environmental, social and governance reporting. And that mm -hmm. is because that's become a pretty effective way of gauging not only risks facing companies um, and some of those risks are substantial. And, and I think the climate issue has focused um, that area quite, quite cleanly lately in terms of figuring out kind of what companies are going to you know, really see new opportunities in a low carbon world and which are going to struggle um, to stay profitable. So there's there's a risk um, judgment that can be made by investors when they look at different companies, if they get these kind of environmental reports from people. Mm -hmm. I think there's an opportunity lens. Um, so figuring out when you're investing in a company, kind of what opportunities are going to be open to this company 10 years from now, um, yeah. if we're moving into a a low carbon future. So there's that angle. And then I think, uh, so so companies have really been asked um, to, to show banks, investors, um, pension plans, how are they thinking about this? Do they mm -hmm. have a handle on these things? There's a, you know, I've been really focused on the climate piece of it. And so that's why I'm excited about the international standards, which I'll talk about in a second. But they're also, you know, they've also been pushed to think really critically in Canada and report out on how are you dealing with um, Indigenous peoples? How are you considering yeah, the social yeah. piece of the puzzle as we move forward? Because that's another huge conversation in Canada about how do we make this country better and mm -hmm. fairer and more resilient going forward? And so so those are the, the types of things that have started cropping up that there's been kind of public demand for, but also demand from the financial sector. We want to know can we kind of show that we're investing in things that are, you know, going to be doing well in 10 years. So, but what's happened originally, Francis, was that those, how to quantify that and how to show it and report it publicly is complicated, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's been, it's been kind of the wild west out there in terms of the metrics people are using and how they report on it. And so 
a couple of years ago, the um, a bunch of kind of high level standard setters got together and said, we're going to create the International Sustainability Standards Board, and we're going to create an international benchmark for how to report out, starting with kind of environment and climate metrics, <laughs> how everybody needs to report out on what they're doing. And so that's a huge game changer because it makes it much easier now for the public and for finance um, the finance sector to compare companies against each other in terms of how they're really doing. Uh, and although, and for countries then to say, okay, now that we're, we've got kind of a common benchmark, we can move in from a regulatory perspective and say, we expect right. to see yeah. these reports published alongside your financial reports, yeah. because these are huge, you know, public financing questions also at the end of the day. I mean, if mm -hmm. we get runaway climate change, the amount of public money left to deal with other social issues is going to dwindle significantly. Yeah, yeah. They're all, we're all going to be paying for, you know, flood repair and fire amount for, you know, at an exponential level in the next couple of decades. So, mm -hmm. so, so that's what's happened in the, just this past month, this um, ISSB as it called, as it's called the international sustainability standards board has come out with the first kind of global benchmark for metrics around this that companies can use to report. And so uh, now the kind of, you know, the Canadian financial regulators are looking at, should we require financial sector companies to report out on this? And that then means the financial sector companies are going to ask all the people they're investing in, mm -hmm. show us what you're doing. And so for the electricity sector and for provinces and others, it means that companies are really starting to look hard at how can they get their emissions under control. And a big piece of that is where will they locate? What kind of power will they use? And so figuring out kind of, you know, how to be part of that uh, real push by companies that we, you know, we're seeing the first kind of wave of now, but only, you know, I think that will only grow over time, um, is really figuring out how can we be part of that? Mm -hmm. How can we encourage people to kind of think of Canada as a place to kind of set up shop because we're, we have very low emission electricity now and we're, and we will build out enough clean electricity to handle that extra load. Right. So that's kind of... I think why those standards are important for people thinking about how to, how to deal with the electricity sector right now. All right. So listen, you know, we, we've, we've talked a little bit about, uh, uh, well, fires, floods, yeah. right. um, you know, we've had hurricanes, we've got yeah. ice storms, we've got derechos, we've got heat domes, we've got um, uh, atmospheric rivers. The whole um, new vocabulary. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, every, every month there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a new kind of, once in a hundred years and once in a thousand year weather event that we've never heard of before uh, until, yeah. until the next one. Um, okay. uh, but you know, when, when you joined us uh, a couple of weeks ago in Winnipeg, your talk was, uh, was, was very positive in terms of, in terms of the approach. So Jane, yeah. how do you, how do you keep motivated in a, You know, when, when here we are with, you know, two um, uh, hottest days ever recorded uh, just occurring and, and yeah. kids being kept away from the soccer field because of smoke from forest fires, how are you keeping motivated and how are you keeping positive on this? Um, you know, I think, um, I mean, uh, obviously we're not on track. And so yeah. we're seeing uh, really, pretty, pretty scary impacts. Um, and, you know, even sort of quicker than some of the scientific reports were predicting five years ago. So, <laughs> I mean, that part scares me as, as much as it scares anybody else. And when I think about, I mean, I think when I, um, when you were in Winnipeg, I was talking to um, 
your group a little bit about sort of what you know what happened in Pakistan last year. I mean, yes, yeah. it was it was just we talk about kind of you know oh yeah it's been it was smoky for a week, but a third of their country was underwater. Yeah, and so uh, and you know they're still you know they've still got millions of people without safe drinking water a year you know coming up on a year later. So I mean I think the potential for real uh, you know really debilitating impacts um, is only growing and that is quite alarming. But why I'm feeling more excited about the climate solution space than I have in the 20 years I've been working in it is because honestly, I've never seen more action happening and at very high levels in the corporate world, in the financial world, and the, the pace at which people are now legitimately trying to figure out how to push through the big barriers that face us when we try to make, you know, an infrastructure build this big, you know, we're thinking about how to build it out in Canada, but, you know, people are also thinking about how do we do this in India? How do we do this in Indonesia? And these are big, really thorny questions. And yet everywhere I look now, I see serious people at tables trying to hammer that out. So mm -hmm. trying to figure out, okay, well, what would it take to help Indonesia get off coal now? Yeah. Uh, so let's bring, you know, the World Bank to the table. Let's bring, um, you know, big developed countries to the table. Let's bring the financial sector. Let's sit down with the government of Indonesia and work through what does that look like? Mm -hmm. How do we help compensate workers in the coal sector? How do we look at kind of risk management uh, offsetting by uh, by the philanthropic sector that could come in and help with that. Then how does the financial sector get into building out renewables in a major way? So, I mean, I just am really excited about the detail and seriousness of the conversations that are happening now that were not happening five years ago, six years mm -hmm. ago. And so, so that it has been a real um, Kind of game changer for me in terms of my own attitude towards the work it you know i really felt for a while that like it was quite depressing work uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because we were seeing you know impacts hitting people and then we weren't really um moving at the pace we needed to and we're not there yet but i do feel like we're finally kind of engaging at the level that's been needed for you know decades now so that's yeah. giving me a lot of I don't want to say hope because that's quite a passive word, I think, but a lot of energy um, <laughs> in terms of getting up and doing my job that um, that's really kind of encouraging. So that's why I'm feeling hopeful. And that was the, you know, what I wanted to really convey to people is you're not alone in figuring this out here in Canada. <laughs> people are trying to figure this out all over the world um, and making real progress. So we'll, you know, I'm sort of optimistic we'll get there, whether it's in time to, <laughs> to kind of avert, um, you know, the worst possible effects. Well, I guess that's up to us, but um, but I think it's moving. Fantastic. Hey, everybody who comes onto the podcast gets this last question, and that is, what book would you uh, would you recommend that the listener uh, pick up? And we we add it to our our flux capacitor book club. So so what book would you recommend <laughs> we we add to uh, our reading list this summer? Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because right now I'm rereading a book that came out. A year or two ago called all we can save okay i don't know if you've heard of this one but um it is a collection of essays oh. from women at the forefront of uh the climate movement uh, and they are unbelievably uh uplifting and um you know some of them are funny some of them are really moving 
But overall, I find them incredibly reassuring because these women are, uh, you know, they're, they're scientists, they're journalists, they work in finance, they're teachers, they come from all different walks of life, and they're all chipping away at this problem from the, from the chair they're in. And it's mm-hmm. a really, I, I think actually talking about sort of how do you stay energized and optimistic, it's a fantastic book to go to just to feel uh, really excited about all the different work that's happening in the space that you might not know about because you're only in your little, uh, you know, bubble at work talking about yeah. one thing. So I would highly recommend it's called All We Can Save. Yep. It's edited by Catherine Wilkinson and Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, two very well-known uh, women in the climate space. Right. And, and I see um, the, the, t- the, full, the full title is All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. That's the one. That's the one. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. It's a great summer read. You can pick it up and put it down, read an essay at a time. And it's yeah. um, just really uplifting, which is rare in this space. <laughs> fantastic. We are going to put a link to it on the on the show page so that folks will be able to, to find it and uh, and be fantastic. able to read it. Thanks. Terrific. Great. Hey, Jane, it was great to great to catch up. Uh, it was it was really good to, to catch up. And at, at some point in time, uh, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to have another chat again, specifically about um, you know, you mentioned voluntary carbon markets, and they never really took off. That's something that I want to I want to have a conversation about at some point in time to figure out why that is and what we could do about it. Oh, well, I'd love to chat again. It's a tiny little topic. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll find some time at the next COP to, 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 to have right. a little side conversation on it because there's a, I love it. I'll a see lot you of there. conversations there. Thanks a lot. Thanks for taking the time to join. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes and please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. And let me know what you think of The Flux Capacitor. You can find me on Twitter as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca and it includes links for this episode on the show page, this being episode 78. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor, including Jane's recommendation for All We Can Save. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.